pale blue dot. What do we mean by that? Well, here it is. Arguably, this is the most significant photograph ever made. A picture of planet Earth as a pale blue speck caught in a, a sunbeam. It's it's actually there. I don't know whether you can you can actually see it where the cursor is. It was taken on the, the 14th of February, 1990, by the Voyager 1 spacecraft at a record distance of 3.7 billion miles. That's more than 40 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. And this is what the astronomer Carl Sagan wrote about this image. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being, whoever was, lived out their lives on a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors, so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of the dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling and character building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, Carl Sagan says, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. I think that's very sobering, isn't it? And it's true, isn't it? That every person in the history of our race has lived here on planet Earth. Um, and if you were born before 1990, you're actually represented by that image as well, by that dot as well. Every person who's ever lived has lived here on that dot, a statement of the obvious. We have no knowledge of any other intelligent beings anywhere else in the universe. It seems it's just us here. Ind indeed, the Earth is the only known world so far to harbour life of any sort. That being the case, it seems profoundly peculiar that traditional religions have just seen existence being here as a waiting room, a corridor to somewhere else heaven, the next life, nirvana, non-existence, or even the kingdom. Is that why religions often seem like death cults, waiting for Godot, always wanting to be somewhere else, denying the value of life and not affirming it, and taking other people and the world that we live in for, for granted? But it was actually a, a Bronze Age shepherd boy who lived 3,000 years ago, who was very perceptive about the real meaning of, ex of existence and what it meant to be here. The Earth may well be a small stage in the grand scheme of things, particularly when you look out at the night sky or see it as a, a pale blue dot from nearly four billion miles away. But being here on planet Earth is significant. It is the sublime context, David realised, in which he could have a real living relationship with God. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, 
who have set your glory above the heavens. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Indeed, that pale blue dot is the stage on which God has revealed himself against the backdrop of the vastness of the universe. That's what David meant when he said, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. That this earth acclaims the name or the character of God because it teems with life. Plants, insects, fish, birds, animals and humans that he created and sustains. Creation and history itself proceed from the name or the character of God. Creation is an expression of God's character. For as Paul says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, even his eternal power and divine character are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to hallow the name of God, because the name of God is the stem cell of creation. If God wasn't the way that he was, he wouldn't have taken the risk and brought all of this into being. In fact, God and creation are presented together in the Bible because God's power and character are showcased by creation. We are the witnesses, or to put it in a scientific way, we are the observers that God has created to, quote one of the Psalms again, meditate on the glorious splendour of his majesty and on his wondrous works, to utter the memory of his great goodness and sing of his righteousness, that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy, that the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. The Bible is a record of this sacred history. Looking at the vastness of the night sky, David asks a rhetorical question in Psalm 8. Why? What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you visit him. It's rhetorical in the sense that David already appreciated the answer to the question. But let me reframe the question in less poetic terms. What are human beings, Lord, that you want a relationship with them and have given them stewardship over this planet? Carl Sagan warns of the folly of human conceit, and justifiably so, if all we are are just the random products of blind evolution. But according to the Bible, we are not the random products of blind evolution, but of deliberate intention. Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He he created them. Male and female, he created them. The implications of these verses are profound, and they reverberate right throughout Scripture. The first and most momentous words said about human beings are that they are made in the image of God. Remarkable for a book in which idolatry and any representation of God is considered to be an absolute taboo. Man is made in the image of God. This is why, despite the vastness of the universe and, our, and the comparative smallness of the earth and our place on it, God wants to be in relation with human beings. And these verses here in Genesis chapter one make that inevitable. David interprets these verses in Psalm eight by saying, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. 
In other words, there is a fundamental kinship here. Man's destiny was to be God's representative, son and heir, realised in, in David's great descendant, Jesus Christ. David fully appreciated these implications and the privilege and responsibility of our calling. Our position of stewardship of this planet comes with an accountability to God himself, in which we have responsibilities to each other and the planners. But continuing to read Genesis, David would know that the story of our alienation from God led to exile from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The first recorded event outside the garden is the murder of Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And in less than two chapters, this culminates in the corruption of the earth through acts of violence. Genesis chapter 6. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Notice that Genesis 6 makes no separation between human corruption and the earth itself. We had infested the earth with our corruption and the acts of violence perpetrated against each other. Scripture does not see human beings as being separate from the rest of this planet. We were made out of the earth itself as the final and crowning act of creation, as though we were an expression of the earth's sentience itself. And that's why so often in the prophetic literature, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Hosea, there are graphic descriptions of the earth writhing in pain or being desolated as though the earth itself were the subject of God's judgments. Our actions and attitudes affect the earth. And not just in the obvious way, but because we are part of a vast interconnected system whose webs of relation we barely understand. And this is what literally precipitated the flood in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 9. Noah and his family emerged from the ark after the flood. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. The new beginning after the flood starts with verse 6 here in Genesis chapter 9, a reminder that violence, the shedding of another human being's blood, was an act against the image of God itself. The direct sin against God in Eden only resulted in exile and in mortality. But here a sin against the image of God in man resulted in a global environmental catastrophe and complete destruction of all humanity, with the exception of Noah and his family. Our stewardship of this planet is predicated on our respect for the divine likeness in ourselves. Our behaviours have a profound effect on this planet, and not just in the obvious ways through our overconsumption of the Earth's resources, the destruction of its forests and the pollution we create, but also through the less apparent pollutions of sin, violence and injustice against each other. God's covenant after the flood wasn't just with Noah and with his descendants, but also with every living creature. God promised never to destroy the earth again with a flood. And you may recognise that image 
Um, it's from COP26 a couple of years ago, um, the UN Climate Change Convention, where representatives of the various parties to the convention set new targets to try and limit the Earth's temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, which I believe now has been raised to 1.8 Celsius because we're, we're not going to hit 1.5. There have been commitments to reversing deforestation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, increasing re renewable energy supplies and supporting those communities most affected by sea level rises. While the conference had seen some genuine commitments, the general feeling was that it may already be too late to prevent extreme weather events that in the end will feed back on themselves, leading to a runaway greenhouse effect, making many parts of the planet completely uninhabitable. The question, maybe from our perspective, brothers and sisters, is, is climate change a thing? It seems to me that it must be, not just because of the scientific evidence, because of what scripture itself says. Moreover, I would say that climate change is inevitable and will be much, much more sudden and dramatic than we think like a thief in the night. Second Peter chapter three. For this they willfully forget that the word of God, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition and godly men. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Peter's words may seem very prescient now. Um, looking back at biblical history and the way that human behaviour has affected the earth, Peter sees the need for a profound renewal of the world again, a fresh start. For most of the last 2,000 years, the majority of expositors believed that Peter's words about the earth and its works being burnt up were figurative. But Peter looks back at the events of the flood and its causes and predicts that God's future judgment on the earth will be through fire. This is not a metaphor because the flood itself wasn't a metaphorical event. But in the same way that Noah's world was cleansed and renewed, um, and obviously it wasn't a different world, um, you know, Peter seems to talk in those terms, but he's talking about a renewal of the world. I think it's important for us to, to understand that. Um, in the same way that Noah's world was cleansed and renewed, so we too should look forward to a renewed heaven and earth. God has always wanted to fill the earth with his glory and dwell with humanity. But we may all individually feel impotent in the face of the challenge before us. But the fundamental assumptions and opinion changes proposed by governments will be a desire in one form or another for business as usual. But we have to understand that we are the pandemic affecting this planet, raising its temperature while permitting profound systemic injustices that allow one man to see the, the earth from space while others are selling their daughters for food. Second Peter 3 and verse 11. Therefore, seeing all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter asks, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening 
hastening the coming of the day of God. David in Psalm 8 sees human existence in sublime terms, but so often, so often, throughout the history of our race, human life has just, human life has just defaulted to an absurdism motivated by, by lust and pride. Let's not be content with just moving the deck chairs in this crisis, as human beings always do, but let us live in a way befitting Jesus' disciples who see God in every aspect of their lives, here and now. Thank you for listening.